Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Wiles Shockey. His work is on view at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth through July 25th in Focus, Wiles Shockey. The exhibition features a film from Shockey's Cabaret Crusades trilogy, along with new and related drawings and sculpture. The installation looks pretty spectacular. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth's presentation was curated by Allison Hurst. Shockey's research-driven work considers and revises global histories through film, performance, sculpture, and installation. His work has been the subject of exhibitions at the Louvre Abu Dhabi, MOCA, the Hammer Museum, the Castello di Rivoli in Turin, and plenty of other places. One quick note before we get to my Shockey interview. It's a little off of our usual audio quality. Shockey was in Alexandria, Egypt when we taped, and we did the best we could. I think you'll have no trouble understanding it. It's just not where we usually are. On the second segment, Rosie Lee Tompkins at the Berkeley Art Museum. Please remember to give us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download the show. It'll help new people find the program. Y.L. Shockey, after the break. If you've been waiting patiently to get back to the Getty Center or experience it for the first time, great news. The center has reopened. Savor stunning architecture, sweeping views of Los Angeles, and the lush Central Garden. Check out four new exhibitions, including Photo Flux on Shuttering LA, Artists as Collectors, and Power, Justice, and Tyranny in the Middle Ages. Make free advance reservations at getty.edu. We can't wait to see you. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, is collaborating with Duke Arts and Duke Health to present an unprecedented outdoor exhibition and public awareness campaign by nationally renowned artist Carrie Mae Weems. Resist COVID Take Six emphasizes the disproportionate impact of the deadly virus on the lives of communities of color through large-scale banners and window clings, billboards, posters, street signs, and more. Resist COVID Take Six has taken shape on the exterior walls and windows of the Nasher Museum and Rubenstein Arts Center at the front gate of Sarah P. Duke Gardens and the Carpentry Shop, home of the MFA in Experimental and Documentary Arts. Resist COVID Take Six allows the Nasher Museum to present an impactful outdoor art experience safely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Later in the fall, Resist COVID Take Six will extend into the surrounding community. The Nasher Museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. The museum is available by appointment to Duke faculty and students. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Wyle Shockey, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi. Hi. I want to start by talking about a small part of your biography and an early part of your history as an artist, because you have in the past presented it as foundational, and it feels to me like a million miles from how you focused your work in the years since. About eight years ago, you told Rachel Spence in the Financial Times newspaper that an important moment in your early development as an artist was traveling to Spain and seeing the work of Bill Viola at the Reina Sofia. I think of Viola's as being devout and earnest and as having a specific constant intensity, which seems, you know, that earnestness seems a mile away from where you've ended up. So what do you remember about those Violas and what do you remember them opening up for you? I think I think that was a really interesting moment for me because uh, back then I did not make videos. I mean, I was just working on 
installations mainly and painting. Many ideas that was losing the sense of the time dimension. And for me, that was really shocking that you still can see. I mean, of course, that was that was maybe the first time for me to see something that large with this intensity. At the same time, it's focusing on this dimension that I I didn't have a tool for, which is very clear for me back then in Viola's work. It's not only because of his way of flowing down the image. It was it was more, I believe, something has to do with, with the topic itself. So I, I think one of the images that I still can't forget is the image of the Python, I believe. This is something, I mean, I honestly can't remember this, this very well now, but so I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if it's, the best, uh, if it's the best way to describe it. What kind of paintings had you been making? And was some of it just seeing, that, seeing how video could work that interested you? Back then, I was really connected to several schools because in Egypt, it's very interesting that in Egypt, we were just surrounded by the remainings of modern art, basically. And it was not really connected yet with contemporary art. So I'm talking about maybe 92. So I was really connected to several schools that were, I I had idea about it through books and that's it. So the German, mainly the German school, which is uh, all the painters from the 80s, all these great painters like Gerhard Richter, Gotthard Graubner, Ocker, uh, Sigmar Polke. And uh, I mean, that was really my, they were my heroes, basically. And also from the side of uh, an installation like Joseph Boys, Anselm Kiefer, that was also another way of, of thinking. Also, I was really connected to Francis Bacon, that time. So I, I still see Francis Bacon in my early drawings, actually. I mean, anyway, so I mean, it, it, was, it was like really a big research through books because we didn't have the access to see anything in real, in museums, when we were students. So the, that's when I was saying the first time, really, I saw something that was really shocking when I went to Spain because I was still a student and I traveled to Spain and uh, when, when I saw uh, Bill Viola, and that was the beginning for me to start to think even in the medium in a different way, that I still can add this time dimension to it. The painting, of course, has, has developed since then in a, in a different way, but these were like really my, my basic. You know, you mentioned those great German painters of the late 20th century, one of the things that they all did was re-examine the Nazi era and especially Richter, the sins of his his family. Does some of your interest, maybe all of your interest, in critically examining history come from those Germans? Um, no, I'm not sure about this, honestly. I think I was just fascinated by Richter in a, in a different way. The way the way even he developed how we see picture, I think, I think is, I was just fascinated even by the way that he made the medium is that flexible, that it's not really anymore for him, even about the topic. It became completely about how to maximize the, the, the medium. 
and I think it's incredible. I mean, I, I mean, especially as a student, to see someone has the ability to do this, really incredible. And also how to create a painting that you control it to the degree that there is no control on it, which is all these things that he used the knife on it. Because in the end, it's really, of course, you see something visually appealing, but it's the system he created that, it, of course, it, it, it happened through control, of course. But you don't see the human act. And I mean, all of these things, I believe it's, it's incredible because it's like creating nature, basically, or imitating creating nature, the system of creating nature. Something like this. I mean, it's really, uh, I really love it. And I still love this concept a lot. I mean, of course, I, I don't do this. It's not about his technique now, but it's, uh, it's about his method, his concept of making, I mean, even now for me, if I try to say that the, the, the moment that I feel that I'm convinced with the drawing I made, when I feel that it's imitating for, for the nature, how, how it should be, where there is no doubt, when you, when, when you make it, when you make the line, for example, there is no doubt in it, though it has no reference. I, yeah, no, I love that. And, and I, 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 that's how I think about Richter a lot, too. You know, as a history nerd, I, I love how he translates his examinations and indeed his uncertainties about history and historical narratives into how he makes objects. And I think that's, that's really valuable. At the core of, of your work for about 20 years now has been revisionism and reframing and critical examinations, not just of history, but critical examinations of how the present uses the past. Is there an origin story of, of your interest in history and your interest in reframing historical narratives? Well, they, of course, when, and I lived as a, as, a, as a child, part of my childhood, I was in, uh, I lived in Mecca, in Saudi Arabia. And this is like, really, this is the situation of, of many families in Egypt, that because of the economy in the 70s, they traveled to the, the Gulf in general, in Kuwait, Qatar, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, the, the, because of course of the oil discovery in, and the oil money in uh, this area. So many of the families went there. So my family were, were one, of, one of these families. So I had the chance to live in Mecca. And I was like, really like lived like a walking distance from Haram. I, I think religion is a big part of my work. And uh, it's, it's really big aspect because I personally lived it as a, as a child. And I... I learned Quran and fiqh, hadith in the school also in, in Saudi Arabia. But also, not, not on, only for this, but I think also because when I lived there, it was in, said it, is, it was the 70s, so mid-70s, if you look at Mecca back then, it was really a nomad character. Like, it was like, like you can say it's a, it's a tribal Bedouin community. But at the same time, it was like a big wave of society that it, it's willing to modernize. And this type of modernity, it was, of course, American modernity. So you see this mix in a really bizarre way, which is 
I think it still also exists in my work. You still can see a Bedouin, barefoot man that is driving a Cadillac. This image exists a lot. It was really growing in the 70s, this, this idea. I mean, of course, if you, if, you, if you go to Saudi Arabia today, it's completely different. But in the 70s, it was just the beginning. So everything was like really clear. Like, like two, two systems have nothing to do with each other, basically. Yeah, so I, I think this, this time was like really, really big thing. And then also the idea as someone from Egypt living in, in Saudi, this is, this is always like it may be for the, for the Europeans or the Americans something like slight difference. But for someone coming from Egypt is a really huge difference. It's like coming from, as I did it before in, in, in one of my projects, that it's called wet culture, dry culture. It's really like, like this. It's, Egypt is a wet culture, meaning it's, like it, it's an agricultural society. When you go to Saudi, it's a dry culture. It is a Bedouin society, which that's a big, huge difference between, between both of the... It's, it's like a completely do, two different layers. And I think also because of this childhood, I still, in my work, usually I, I work with, with several systems, with several layers. That, I mean, if, if you look even at the films, the same, not only the, the drawings. If you look at a film like Al Arab Al Madfuna, for example, where you see a person who is speaking, a kid that is speaking in an, an adult voice, and the kid is telling a story, but at the same time, what he is saying, what what the kids are saying to each other, has nothing to do with the with the visual story that you are seeing at the film. And I think that when I try to see that, I think it's really coming from this childhood. <laughs> I think it. It was a very weird childhood. <laughs> I love that idea. You know, talking about Mecca reminds me of, of something I was going to bring up later. But as you just mentioned it, let's, let's talk about it here. The Mecca that is there now is architecturally massively different <laughs> than it was 40 years ago. It's just enormously built up. And I think that when, when people talk about your work, you know, we, the marionettes are often foregrounded, but your work also really looks at the built environment a lot, both in terms of how you present it and kind of how you play with it. And one of the early-ish works in which you do that is an animation called Al-Aqsa Park from 2006. It features the Dome of the Rock, which is one of the oldest extant works of Islamic architecture. And, and in fact, I think it's thousandth anniversary the thousandth, the one thousandth anniversary of the present day structure is next year. So you present it as, as as spinning, kind of as if it were you know above a tabletop or on a record stylus. The Dome of the Rock has been a contested site between Jews, Christians, and Muslims for centuries, and your animation calls our attention to the way it is ever changing, depending on on historical circumstance, and that our present use of it or our present understanding of it never hold still, which I love. How did you come to decide to address that building and why did you choose to to spin it, as it were? I was invited to to an exhibition in Thaloniki in Greece with a really, really interesting curator 
His name is Pierluigi Tatsky. So we, we an Italian curator. So we, we had this opportunity to, to, make, to make an exhibition in a field, basically. And this field was part of an army, is like an, an army camp. Um, so we, we had like at least two, uh, two months in this area before we decided. We, 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 so we had enough time to, to think what is connected to this topic of army. And uh, it's, it's the exhibition I, I remember is called uh, No Man's Land. Anyway, I mean, the exhibition didn't have anything to do with the situation with Palestine, Israel. It was mainly about the situation, like it was really like more humanistic, basically. But I always had this idea about Palestine, always the idea about how to translate this topic, because since, of course, as an Arab, as, as a Muslim, um, this idea about Palestine, Al-Aqsa, all of this is something I know since I was, I don't know, like just maybe three years old. It's something that really exists. I mean, it's really interesting because in the Arab world, that's called occupation. I mean, this is reality. That is, that is what, what people say in the Arab world. I mean, this, this does not exist in Europe, this world, what is happening in, in not only in Jerusalem, in the whole area. So when I thought about it, it was almost, to me, similar to a work I did that it's called The Caves. That it's, for me, it's, it's almost a self-portrait, basically. I mean, a self-portrait, because in, in the end, it, of course, I've never visited Jerusalem before. I mean, I, I don't have the, the ability to go. I mean, I'm not allowed even to go. But, okay, so just, just to make it short, anyway, I, I mean... Th- th- to try to make this mosque as a toy in, a, in an amusement park. And this special toy, I, I really like it a lot. I mean, because I, this is all animation. I was trying to make, to make the mechanism to be able to create it inside the animation studio. I, and I couldn't find this machine because it's an, it's an old type of machine. Anyway, I found it finally. We traveled to one amusement park in, uh, I would think it was in Athens, and I found this machine. I filmed it, and then we, we were able to do it. What I always love about this machine, because it, it, this machine, as, as a kid, I know it, that it was all, always connected to someone who is controlling it from outside, of course. And as a, as a controller, you make it slow or fast, or higher or lower based on the screaming of the of the people inside. This is really usually the the the, the fun way about it that it's really it's it, it's something between something really dangerous, but at the same time it's fun. And it, I mean, and, and but you know that there's someone is controlling it. It's not someone. It's not the people inside that are controlling it. Of course, <laughs> there are people from outside. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, so if you want to. Think about it also, it's something like, for me, it's connected to cavalry crusades because these marionettes and the, the strings are, it's, it's all about manipulation and, and there is something, someone hidden that you know that there is someone hidden controlling everything. Anyway, what I like about this film, Al-Aqsa Park, that I made it in a way that it, it's in a loop. So it's an endless loop, basically. It, it never stops. It goes up and down, and 
and circles and and sometimes it reminds you of a UFO. Yeah, it's, it's several things, but at the same time, it's, <laughs> it's it never. I mean, every time you say, "Okay, this is the end." No, it's not the end. <laughs> it will continue. That's a great story. I had never, I had not read that story about the connection between a Greek amusement park before, but it it really opens up the work. You know, that does that does re- remind me. You know, you speaking of Greece, you've been exhibiting globally. So, you know, not only in Egypt, not only in the U.S., you know, for about 20, a little over 20 years now. And I don't want to presume anything before I ask my next question. So let me ask this first. Do you think audiences in Egypt or Doha see and understand the historical narratives and addresses within your work, such as El Aqsa Park? and understand it differently than Americans or Parisians or Turks? Honestly, that, that is always my question. I'm sometimes surprised, and sometimes really surprised, that I find, yes, I mean, sometimes I'm surprised, for example, that the cave was successful, because I thought it would be only successful in, in Turkey, for example. The first time I, I, I made it, it was shown in Istanbul Biennial, and that was in 2004. I made the first film in 2004. I think it was exhibited in 2005. And I, then I showed it in Egypt, and it was extremely successful. But I thought this is successful because people understand Quran. It's about a surah in Quran, that people know what is it, and they know the story about it. And I'm, okay, I'm, I'm walking in a supermarket, reciting this surah from memory for 15 minutes without any mistakes. And if I make any mistake, I, I start the whole video from the beginning. And I ha- it has to be from memory and it has to be one take. cannot be any edited. Yeah. And I should, I should, I should jump in and note that, that you've done this in different cities. So you, you have done this not just once and in one place, but that you've taken the idea. Yeah. I, w- I was planning to make this forever also. I, I like this idea a lot that things I like to to make something that really does not stop because, yeah, it's like, uh, I mean, I was planning to make it, okay, I made it first in Istanbul, then I went to to Amsterdam and I made one, then I went to Hamburg and I made another one, and and then I went to America and I was planning to make another one, and they did not allow me. It just happened that they did not allow me in, in, in supermarkets in the U.S. I think now maybe it's different, but back then they did not allow me. So I stopped. I didn't, I didn't continue after that. But that was the plan. But anyway, I mean, walking in a supermarket, reciting this, it, it, for me, that was, it was mainly in the beginning, it, was, it came this idea because I was, I was living in Turkey, in Istanbul. And Istanbul in 2004, it was like this big clash between Islamists and liberal community, uh, secular community, that, is, that they really want to be part of the European, Euro- European Union. At the same time, there is a big also wave, political wave, that it's against being part of the European Union. They want to be part of the Islamic culture. And I think this is the nature of Turkey, which is that it's always in the heart of the middle between Western East, let's say. Okay, and that's, that's for me also the time when I was feeling that 
am looking at myself as an artist who is traveling and is carrying this knowledge of Islam that is coming from Mecca. At the same time, I live in a completely modern capitalist world. So to translate this as a self-portrait, it was the cave. But at the same time, it was a translation for how I see the situation in Turkey. Just an example, if you go to the mosque in Turkey, of course people are reciting Quran in classical Arabic because this is the language of Quran. But at the same time, if you speak to people in the street, they don't speak in Arabic. So it's how you, you, your religion is in a language that you don't speak. And that was also always a question also. Yeah, anyway, I think this video was like really shown everywhere, even in New York, in at the new museum, in everywhere. And I think it was the reaction was always for me surprising because I didn't know how someone does not really relate to this language or to, to, to the Quran. Why will he or she be connected to this uh, film? So sometimes it's like you were asking me about the, the different reaction from people. Cabaret Crusades is the same, I think. It's also a big game. But for example, Al-Arab Al-Matfuna, that's, a, that's, that's why I was saying that's a very good question. Al-Arab Al-Matfuna is very successful in the Arab world. And when it's shown in European museums, I always feel it's, it's successful for different reasons. It's successful for the, for the visuals, but I, do, I never feel that the story is captured, which is completely Egyptian story. And it's written by an amazing author called Muhammad Mustajab. I like his work a lot. So that's, that's the difference. You mentioned a moment ago that you n- have noticed how audiences love the visuals of Al-Araba Al-Madfuna, which, which is totally true and audiences love the visuals of Cabaret Crusades also. I mean, it's like impossible to look away from once you're sitting in front of it. And as I rewatched those works to prepare to talk to you, I came to be thinking about how in, in a lot of your work, including in, in the work you showed at Listen in New York two years ago in 2019, scale is really elusive. It can be hard to tell if we're looking at something small and minute or something really large. Sometimes I look at the children, the, the, the child actors reading their parts in El Araba, Al Madfuna, and I kind of forget their kids. I mean, they, they're, they're wearing adult clothes, you know, for a spell. Sometimes I think they're older. This is all a long way of asking if you're interested in the uncertainty of scale and leaving your audience unsure of how real or large something they're looking at is. Yeah, I think, I think this is only also part of uh, what I'm trying to do. I, I think I went through several steps, I mean, including also using marionettes in my work. Because in, in the end, of course, I'm trying to, to escape the language connected to, to what we know in cinema. I try to escape drama as much as I can. And part of escaping drama is to escape acting skills. So, I mean, it's several things. So I, I think kids, in the, working with kids was, was extremely important for me as a step in that. 
in, in telematch series, of course, that was the beginning when I was just working with kids. You still can see them as kids. It was not confusing in the in telematch series. For example, in telematch series, telematch Sadat, it's a reenactment for the assassination of President Sadat in 1981. The thing is that you see the parade in a different look. It's okay. It's, it's just the parade, the military parade that happened for the assassination. It's just a different look. It's just with donkeys and camels and trucks and instead of like airplanes. And uh, that's the, the difference. At the same time, you see kids instead of, of the military. So, but you still realize that they are kids. I think that, that when I decided to, uh, let's say in that case, you're trying to erase. I always call it like this. I feel that I'm, I'm trying to erase drama from the topic. And then in that case, you only concentrate on visual and concentrate on the script and the story, of course. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, in, 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 in terms of what you just said, it reminds me that maybe some of your preference for marionettes or, or children are that these choices may reference a metaphor for a certain distrust of leaders in the ends to which they use history. Yeah, I mean, I mean for, for me, I, yeah. I mean, in, in the case of Telematch Sadat, for example, it has a certain feeling for me. I was watching TV when I was a kid when Sadat was assassinated. I remember the feeling. I remember when the camera was moving. I, I remember this feeling when, when it cut off and, and everything. So I don't know, maybe I was, I was 10 years old when this happened. So to, to try to remake this again when you are like 25 or 26 years old, it's really interesting because you are attached with the memory, but not emotionally. Somehow this is how I see it. Anyway, I think so. I think this is, that's why you, you do it. So, but I, so I think it's very important when you say that it's a, it's a, a reenactment. What I try to do in Telematch Sadat is to use the same angles of the camera that we had in the real assassination. And using these angles, it does not say that this is what really happened. It says that this, these are the information that we have. Because, yes, we cannot trust what we received in the end. This is the, the final result. It's like the killing of assassination of Kennedy. They use the same, <laughs> same angle because this is what you have. <laughs> this, this is the information that you have. And I think this is, uh, for me, it's a way of analyzing history. Because, yes, because history is, is what you, what, what is, what's left, what we have in, as, as a document. But it doesn't, it doesn't mean that it's real, it's true. It's, it's what, what, what we received in the end that can be just like uh, 20% of the truth. I don't know. Nobody knows. That's the best thing about your work is that in almost all of your work, history is blended with and confused with myth and national narrative in ways that point to how all of that is constructed from the same soup and that history is not necessarily or historical understanding is not necessarily separate from mythology. One of the ways you do that in um, Cabaret Crusades 
is with marionettes and, and specifically with marionette strings. In each of the Cabaret Crusades films and film installations, the strings are as present really as the marionettes themselves. And for me, that, that works as a metaphor for the construction and propping up of historical understanding itself. And, and I suspect that's how, how, how it works for you too. Did you ever consider hiding the marionette strings? Was there ever a, a, a point in working on, on that work over the course of four years or five years when you thought that you might hide the strings? Yes, I, of course, of course. I, I mean, I had I had many different thoughts about if, if I hide the strings or not. I mean, it was always, of course, I, I always ended up with the, leaving the strings is the, the best because, as, as you said, exactly, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for manipulation, the, the construction that, again, it's, uh, this is the way you, it implies the, the hidden system that is controlling everyone from the Pope Till the people in the street, and uh, I, I, I think this is um, that was very important for Cabaret Crusades, the idea of the strength. But I mean, also, I, I think Cabaret Crusades was really a very beautiful journey for me. It was like for me, it was how to try to connect between the story, the material used in the marionette, the the music, which type of music, which type of of the of scenography, which type of light even that fits with each chapter. Uh, so for me, that was really like something really interesting because yes, they, they are all marionettes, but it was a decision that each each part, which is a trilogy, so each part is, is really different from the other. In the individual, I mean, in the in the language that it's used, but it's always connected to the story. That it's been told. For example, the first, the first film is is dealing with only four years from that crusade's history, and these four years are mainly European vision. It's not really, though I say it's driven from the Arab point of view, but the first part is really European because we didn't have that much information about, for example, the the speech by Pope Urban II. It was not the Arab who, who documented this. But the people who documented this later were the Europeans. And the whole trip from Europe to reach Constantinople, this is really not written by the Arab. This is really written by the... So anyway, so the first part for me is, is mainly... European, based on the European documents. So anyway, the, the visual in this part is more Renaissance. If, if we're talking about the, the, the visual, it's more Renaissance. The marionettes that are used in this part are historical, 200 years old Italian marionettes that I did not make them myself for the first part. And they are wood. They are made in wood. So everything is really, for me, in the first part is more more European. When we go to the second part, that's when the, the crusaders are settled already in the area. And now the, the, in the second part, we're dealing with the dates from uh, 1099, when they are already settled in Jerusalem and in Antioch and in uh, Tripoli. In the second part, we're dealing with 
with different things. Actually, it's mainly about the relationship between the Muslim leaders between them with each other. There were a lot of a lot of fights between the Muslim leaders, and they were trying to protect themselves from the from the Crusaders. This is more for me is more related to the Arab point of view, and most of the script in this part is of course is taken from uh, Ibn al-Kathir, Ibn al-Qalansi, Usama ibn Munqiz. And these are the historians who, the Arab historians who, who live in this, in this area, in this uh, time. And to make this the second part, it was also very important to think how to make it, to make it in clay, that the clay is very connected to our religious way, to how human beings are created, that we are create, created from clay, from mud. And it's worth noting often architecturally too. So European buildings of that period were built with wood and your marionettes are wood because Europe was forested. And in the Middle East, which was not forested, at least not in the same way Europe was, the built environment was built from, from the earth. And I, and I think also talking about the, the, the buildings, the scenography in that, in the second part, because of this, it was driven from maps that is connected to someone called Nasuh Matrixi, who is a Muslim Bosnian geographer, gun maker, scientist, artist also, who made many maps for Aleppo, Damascus, Baghdad, Jerusalem, Constantinople. And I used his maps as the background. I mean, not his maps, of course, we had to, to turn it into 3D, but it's based on his map. So the scenography in the second part is, is really different. It's not Renaissance anymore. It's becoming more like Persian miniatures. And I, and I, I mean, that's, that's the trip that I'm saying, that, that how to try to, to, con to, to connect between this history of each part separately. And then to use, the, th the third part is to use the, the glass marionette. It was not just because it's glass marionette, it's uh, because the third part of the of Cabaret Crusade is dealing more about the the fourth crusade. So when we look at the fourth crusade, is it's mainly an agreement happened between the the European leaders, mainly mainly the French leaders, and Venice. So Venice was a power in that time that it, it had the, the strongest fleet in the whole Mediterranean. So they, they decided to attack Jerusalem this time through Venice. So I decided to make all the marionettes from Murano glass in Venice. And that's, that is the idea here, to use the, the glass. Yeah, I mean, I mean there are, there are several, several ways also. I mean, there, there, for example, to... To, to make these marionettes in glass, I, I said this in several interviews before, but I, I really like to mention it. When I was younger, actually, I was, I was reading uh, this amazing book by uh, uh, Jose Saramago, uh, The Gospel According to Jesus Christ. And I remember that this part when he was imagining Jesus speaking to, to God. And... Asking God why we are created that uh, 
fragile that we can be broken from one accident. Why we are not made out of light, for example? How come our minds and our souls that are really high are present inside something very fragile that can be broken from anything? So, I mean, okay, it, of course, it's uh, just a, a question that he created in his book, but I, I, I liked it a lot, and I thought I was always thinking to how to create uh, these marionettes from something extremely fragile like glass because of this book. And of course, also because so it has to do with the fragility. It has to do with the, with the Venetian involvement in the crusade. Yeah, and also, to be very honest, if we go back to your previous question about the kids and why they are in the Al-Arab Al-Madfuna, the scale, all of this, and I was saying to you that I'm working in steps, and I think it developed this idea that it's mainly about racing drama. In the beginning, in telematch series, it was, you see the kid as a kid. When you go to Al-Arab Al-Madfuna, it's not a kid anymore. You don't know exactly what is it. In the first and the second part, it's still black and white, kid, but it has a mustache and an adult voice. When you go to the third part of Al-Arab Al-Madfuna, it's not only a kid with a mustache and an adult voice, but also it's an inverted image. When it's an inverted image, it even, you, you even don't see the innocence. So I, I, I think that's why I think this is, a, for me, it's a, it's, a, it's a type of development for the idea, as much as I remove the drama and the, let's say the humanistic part, the human-made part of it that I was saying earlier about Gerhard Richter, that he's, you don't see the human-made, the human touch in it. I think, in my opinion, I feel more comfortable when I'm working. And I think when you go to develop the marionette, from being an actual, antique, historical, wooden marionette into clay, then into glass in the end. I think having it in glass is even, is, is similar to this step that happened with the filming the kids. Because in glass it becomes, you, you don't see even the, it becomes even trans, sort of transparent you start to see even the mechanism inside the, the head of the marionette where you see the, the, the eyes mechanism. So it doesn't have any, any reference of good or bad anymore. You cannot say this, this mask looks like, uh, like evil or look like a good man. <laughs> There's nothing like this. You know, as, you're, as, I wa- as I've watched the films over the years and as I heard you talk about it just now, it all reminds me how, you know, for centuries, one of the highest forms of European art was history painting and how virtually everything you do in those six films, the Al Araba, Al Madfuna, and in Cabaret Crusades, is to undermine history painting. It is to reject the standards of celebratory, triumphal history painting. 
it, it all kind of exposes it, which I enjoy a lot. <laughs> the last thing I want to ask you about is, is maybe a little lighthearted and maybe not. You like camels. Camels run through a really high percentage of, of your work, either in marionette form or in a work like Dictum's Mankia 1 from 2014, kind of on their own. Why do you like using, if that's the right word, camels so much? Is it cultural history? Is it metaphor? Is it something else? Yeah, well, it's very interesting because um, <laughs> this is something like really... <laughs> I like a lot this, this idea about using camels in my work. First of all, I mean, I mean, I, I, I love it. I mean, in, in, it, it almost exists in most of my drawings, this yeah. idea of camel. But what I like about it, actually, that in the European and also the American mind, always camels are connected to Egypt, which is really is not the truth at all. We really have, I mean, the camels, we, we basically, I mean, for us, we bring camels from, from Sudan. We don't have camels in Egypt. And it's really, it's used here in Egypt only for tourism, and very few of them. So this idea about camels in Egypt does not really exist at all. I don't know where did it come from. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I always, li- I mean, I, I like this. So most of, if you think of most of the Egyptian artists, I'm sure they would escape this idea of camel because it doesn't it doesn't bring any. I mean, it, it's not connected at all to, to to Egypt. Plus, it's a cliche that it's not real. But for me, actually, camels are connected to Saudi Arabia. It's really coming from Saudi Arabia for me. It's coming from this nomad Bedouin culture in Saudi Arabia since. My childhood is connected to this, as I explained. So most of what I camel for me is, is connected to that. It's connected to the idea of the Bedouin nomad. And it has several things. It's also connected to the idea of boys. How fat is the source of energy? It's a storage of energy. Many things. It's a, it's a surreal creature. It's connected to the idea of the imaginary dinosaur. It's, it's, it's a lot. I mean, it just appears in, in most of my even surreal drawings, I find that the camel is, exists. But it has, I'm just trying to say this, it really has nothing to do with Egypt. <laughs> maybe a little bit of a self-portrait? Well, I mean, maybe. But I just think it's, I'm just connected to it. And the idea, for example, of Manqiyya, the film that I made for Manqiyya, it's fascinating because I, I love it a lot because it, it, uh, it's filming certain types of camels in, in the Gulf. This film was made in Abu Dhabi. I mean, nearby Abu Dhabi, of course, not the city itself. But it, 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 it's in United Arab Emirates. So what we were filming is a herd of black camels. And these black camels are a fortune. I mean, you would say that maybe each one black, black camel can worth almost like a, a million dollars. It's really big deal. So if you are a wealthy, wealthy sheikh from United Arab Emirates, you can have 
like a huge big herd of black camels. I mean, this is not something like really, that's something rare. But they celebrate these camels. They have channels for camels in, in United Arab Emirates. Really, channels only for camels. That you, you open the channel and you see just herds of camels are uh, walking in the desert. And in the background, there will be poems about camels, the beauty of camels. So for me, it's really interesting because these camels, these black camels, are even, they bring it from Saudi Arabia. Originally, they are from Saudi Arabia. And they worth, as I said, they worth a lot. So if I'm someone very rich and I have all these camels, sometimes they they make sort of like very prestigious competitions between these wealthy men, these sheikhs. And they, they call it manqiyya. Manqiyya means, I hope this is the, the right translation, but it, it means selective. So if I have the best selection, the best of the best, I'll be the winner. And if you, if you look at this, try to, con- to, to, to compare between this and between the the dog festival that you see in, in America, for example, the best, more beautiful dog competition, whatever. And I think this is something, uh, it's sort of analysis to culture. And it, for me, it's something not only poetic, it's poetic, but at the same time, it, it has to do with translating economy in this area. Uh, sort of, yeah. I love that. Wael Shaki, thank you very much. Thank you so much. That was really beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Focus Y.L. Shockey, highlighting a film from his ambitious trilogy, Cabaret Crusades, along with new and related drawings and sculpture. In this exhibition, as with much of his work, Shockey explores the ambiguities between history and myth in a multimedia presentation in order to challenge the authority of history. At The Modern through July 25th. Information at themodern.org. Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska, presents Deconstructed Anthems on July 1st at 7 p.m. Central by pianist Dr. Christine Taylor, and on July 29th and September 2nd at 7 p.m. Central by pianist Dr. Brian Stanley. Deconstructed Anthems is an ongoing series of music performances in which a musician and or music ensemble plays a deconstructed score of The Star-Spangled Banner, created by artist Ekene Ijoma, by removing notes and repeating at the rate of mass incarceration. For the performances at Bemis, Ijoma created Deconstructed Anthems Nebraska 12, 2015. In 2015, black people in Nebraska were incarcerated six times more than whites. The number is doubled to 12 to extend the duration of the performance, which ends in silence. Deconstructed Anthems is part of Bemis's current exhibition, Altogether Amongst Many, Reflections on Empathy, a multi-generational group exhibition exploring the cultural and socio-political issues currently defining the United States. Presented on the heels of the 2020 U.S. elections, the work of 20 artists takes various approaches to understanding empathy and aims to awaken shared beliefs in humanity during these polarizing times. Altogether Amongst Many, Reflections on Empathy, is on view at Bemis through September 19th. 
RSVP at bemacenter.org slash events. The performance will also stream live at twitch.tv slash bemacenter. Twitch account not required. Welcome back. Next up, Berkeley Art Museum curator Elaine Yao joins me to discuss Rosie Lee Tompkins' A Retrospective. It's on view at the museum through July 18th. Tompkins was an Arkansas-born, East Bay-based quilt maker whose work addressed textile traditions, the Bible, and America's history. Elaine Yao, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Rosie Lee Tompkins is a pseudonymous name. What does that name being invented have to do with how the largest and most significant collection of her work landed at your museum? So I think it means that when people come to see the work at the Berkeley Art Museum, I think there should be an awareness that her work has already been the product of so many different kinds of interventions from the art world. And I guess what I mean by that is, you know, I think there's sort of this assumption that for maybe a more typical artist who maybe like will work in a studio, maybe a dealer or a curator might have mediated some kind of relationship and it ends up in a museum. I think by virtue of Rosie Lee Tompkins being a pseudonym, of course, there are other artists who work under pseudonyms for various reasons. But I think in her case, I think what visitors to the museum or anybody who is new to Tompkins's work should know that it is really the invention of Eli Leon and his involvement as a collector. And really, I think, speaks to a really interesting, I guess you could say human interest story on the one hand, but I think it is her pathway to the mainstream art world or, you know, modern art museums was not straightforward, nor was it a foregone conclusion. Rosie Lee Tompkins is the pseudonym that both she and, you know, Eli Leon came to agree upon, the she being Effie Mae Howard. She was a quilter, an African-American woman who was born in Arkansas in 1936, and then through a series of life events and desires, to say nothing of deep oppression, racial injustice in the Deep South during the 30s and 40s and 50s, made her great migration journey to California. It was in California that she intersected with Eli Leon at a flea market. Literally a flea market. (laughs) Literally a flea market in Marin County. And that's where quilting became their point of connection. So I guess, yeah. So in answer to your question, Rosie Lee Tompkins was the main interface, I think, between the privacy and the ambivalence that Effie Mae Howard as a woman had towards Eli Leon and sort of the interests of a collector and his desire to exhibit and show her work. That was sort of one really, the name becomes a key site of negotiation from my perspective. Let me fill in one thing on Eli Leon before we go on. He, he was certainly a collector. He, he accumulated an enormous collection of thousands of objects that are now at the Berkeley Art Museum. He was not a collector in, you know, that he was hanging out with Larry Gagosian. He was Bronx-born, spent time as an artist at Black Mountain College, went to Oberlin and Reed, was a psychologist, and came to his collection as a researcher and, and as somebody who loved researching African-American 
quilts, particularly in, in Arkansas and Louisiana and Texas and East Texas anyway, and that, that part of the country. So Rosie Lee Tompkins was an invented name, but Effie Mae Howard wasn't shy about including at least part of her name in her quilts. Many of them include the word, the name Effie on them. How might we, should we reconcile that dichotomy? So the the inclusion of Effie, yeah, I think I'd answer that in two different ways. So the first being, we'll just start in the later work in the 2000s. I think by that point, it is no secret that, you know, kind of in the late 70s and the 80s, she did struggle with a nervous breakdown the way that sort of Eli Leon has documented it and did struggle with mental illness. And, you know, I think one, the embroidery begins to appear with more frequency, I think, as connected to the way that quilting served as a therapeutic or stabilizing presence in her life. And so you'll notice, in addition to the name Effie, there are many scriptural references with numbers, often from the Christian Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, many names and places, sort of these kind of very familiar coordinates for the artist. And so it's it's my sense that both these scriptures, these kind of cascades of sequences of numbers, again, are sort of serving like an underlying conceptual structure for her to just sort of keep stitching. So I think for in one sense, her name functions in that way. But at the same time, you know, you'll often see Effie, the first name, a birth date and an age. So I think there's this real sense of, forgive the pun, but like intertwinement, right, that these later works really have with kind of meditations on self. So that's, I think, one part of the answer. The second part of the answer, you know, at the time that she had met Eli in 1986. Many of her works at that time tended to be, you know, more straightforward kind of piecework, piecing, piecing quilts. So in other words, they're about pattern and design. And so you won't see as much text or her name stitched on them. Now there is one, one exception. There's this red applique quilt where the surface is full of, you know, decorative trim and found found patchwork and stitchery. And she does have her name on there. And so I think I to that, I would just say, you know, I think throughout her body of work, there was always a sense of authorship, you know, her sense of identity as a maker and as a creator that so adding her signature or her name seems very natural. Throughout her life and her work with Eli, because she was so adamant about keeping her identity under wraps, Eli himself was very conscious about not publishing or exhibiting work that would in any way reveal the person under Rosie Lee Tompkins. Speaking of signatures, as it were, the early works in the show from, from the 1980s have a kind of signature move to them. They're, they're often built around squares that are, are cut diagonally with kind of one half of the square one color, one half of the square the other color. And entire quilts are, are built around this system. They're never, or maybe almost never, quite on a grid, but they reference the dissolution of a grid or maybe a, fracture, a fracturing of vision or a coherence dissolved. Do you have any ideas about why this building block and then that form attracted Tompkins to it and why she kept mining it for 20, 30 years? I think the sort of visual 
or I guess textile-based vocabulary that you're zeroing in on has a lot to do with the vocabulary of quilting. I think that can be a very straightforward answer. So the triangle forms that you're identifying are the half square triangle, which as I'm in the process of learning is a really foundational piecing unit in the world of quilting. So yes, you can take two pieces of fabric, you make a square with the two triangles. But I think what that allows is any quilter can piece an array of patterns from that simply by simply by changing the orientation of the diagonal or by alternating alternating colors. And so I think you do see that her facility with that, as you noted, you know, across so many different quilts. So I think that speaks to her quote unquote training. And I don't mean that in a to say that she wasn't trained at all, but to say, you know, her education as a quilter began in her home with her mother, with other women, relatives, her aunts in her community in Arkansas. And we're fortunate in our collection now, we have two examples of quilts made by her mother, and they do incorporate that half square triangle motif. And they also incorporate the improvisational approach that now Rosie Lee Tompkins is now celebrated for. So on the one hand, there is sort of this grounding in the craft and history of of quilting, the traditions of quilting. As you can see, I think, and as you noted, she sort of takes that and I, I think explores every single element and formal aspect that one could. So for example, I'm looking at plate 34 in the catalog, I think you can see that most graphically just in the coloring. So you have half square triangles, you know, some are in a pinwheel orientation. I'm not really sure how we can talk you through it, but <laughs> I think you, you can like just call out certain pinwheels. In other cases, for example, I'm looking at the right margin, third block down, which, gosh, the quilters who are listening to me Please give me a little bit of grace here, but I think that is a broken dishes pattern. <laughs> and in some other cases where you see a line of half square triangles oriented in the same direction, they form the sawtooth pattern. But here, yes, so here in this example, you see her working in blocks. But then in other examples, I'm looking at plate 50 and about, you know, two thirds down, I hope you can see the, the pink and purple sawtooth that I was mentioning. But sort of in, in the block right next to it, you can see how there's the large black and blue half square triangle that is larger, but then it kind of multiplies into the smaller two halves on top. And that dramatic shift in scale, that was certainly something that Eli Leon noted and wrote about extensively. But I think, yeah, you can see her experimenting with size. So there's the half squares, but also in the same work, I'll just note in the block about halfway down where you see kind of the light, the, the, the darker lavender white half square triangle with a series of bars abutting it to the left. Again, bars, another very common kind of foundational unit and way of piecing in quilt making where, you know, they look like stripes to us, but again, the bar form can be blown up or made much smaller depending on the effect that the quilter is seeking. I think in you know, Rosie Lee Tompkins's case, again, it's another way for her to bring in another formal element. Or, you know, in some cases, I think you can see how she's adding the bars to bring 
a block up to size. And, you know, and I think that's sort of the, the fun and really why her quilts are so engrossing because, you know, I think the works invite you to try to understand her, her aesthetic process, whether she's, you know, building pieces outward and again, in an improvisational way, or if she's proceeding with much more of a perhaps set concept in mind and is realizing this in stash of fabric that she has available to her. Could these triangle built blocks also be a little bit of a self-portrait or, or, or at least reference the maker? And I'll just be honest, I don't know the degree to which that particular form is self-referential or if it has some kind of larger personal symbolism. You're right. I do talk about or, you know, suggest some kind of symbolic meaning in this particular work because at least in Eli's notes, he quotes her as saying, the orange is me. And how one could even begin breaking that down, I, I ventured a starting point by saying in this particular work, to me speaks about containment, just in thinking about the ways the half square triangles are very much bordered by these thick orange velour frames. But of course, you know, in the way Larry and I have chosen to orient this piece. Larry Rinder, your co-curator. That's correct. Yes. You know, you sort of see the complete dissolution of that border. And what is difficult to discern in the reproduction is that upper right corner, the dark blocks are this really deep, rich black velvet, velvet fabric, whereas the majority of the darker half square triangles you see are red, navy, and forest green. They're just sort of, the nuances are hard to capture photographically. And so I think we do know that she often thought symbolically in her colors. What the reference, the exact reference point is, I think remains somewhat of a mystery. But, you know, kind of connecting that with what we understand about her mental health. You know, I think there is something that we could read as far as a sense of either stability or wholeness that's really being undermined or always seemed somewhat fragile. So that's something that I might offer in terms of a more kind of personal reading or autobiographical reading. There's a similar kind of self-identification that occurs on her later works, especially the yo-yos. And the one example I'm looking at is plate 60. It's a brown work, a brown backing with orange embroidery and yo-yos. And again, like the half square triangle, yo-yos are a traditional kind of craft unit, which is you know a round piece of fabric that has been cinched along the edge. And so you create this little rosette form. You know, typically those are uniform, of uniform size, and stitched together to create a decorative cover. But what she's done here is really kind of treated each unit in a much looser, in a much looser way. And we know in some of the way she uses numerical symbology that often the yo-yos, the number of yo-yos in a given work will correlate to the number in the upper left of the work. So in this case, 53. Effie May Howard's family helped me sort of work through this particular piece, which I'm told was in honor of one of her sons, where 53 was, 
I believe, the date of his birth. And so there would be 53 yo-yos in this particular piece. But yes, and you asked about autobiographical. There, the cover image of the catalog is one where the number 68 correlates to Effie Mae Howard's age at the time of making. And so there are, in fact, I believe, 68 yo-yos on this work. And so, yes, I think it does invite a kind of reading. You know, the yo-yos are, you know, are they a chronicle of different years of her life? Are they merely just meant to provide a visual, formal, a formal picture of one's age? I think there are so many questions it invites. You know, there are black circles. Do they somehow relate to kind of a mood or a memory of any given year. Can't offer anything conclusive, but like I said, I think it invites that kind of that kind of questioning and wondering. In the 1990s, representational elements come into the work, sometimes pop cultural, if you will, Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson references, and sometimes references to America and American history, such as in an untitled work from about 1996 that is plate number 44 in the catalog and on manpodcast.com because so many of these are untitled, we'll include the plate numbers so it'll be a little easier to follow along. And in, in, in this work from about 1996, there are American flags, there are elements that reference the biblical story of the flight into Egypt, the uh, Mary and Joseph flight into Egypt with, with the baby Jesus, which in this context reads like a reference to Tompkins's own migration story. Long way of asking, why do you think the representational elements come in in, in in the 1990s? And maybe in particular, why and how did she do such a broad address of 20th century American history? I offer this only because I know many quilters who will just become inspired by what they find. And so it is possible that in the 90s, this moment, she had or somehow found in a thrift store a series of American flags. And maybe that spurred some larger, longer meditation or involvement, engagement with issues of Americanness, pluralism, diversity. So that's one answer I think I could offer. As far as, you know, historically speaking, That is a question, honestly, sorry, Tyler, I have to think about that a little bit more. I don't know. (laughs) This particular quilt is is really interesting, and it's filled with kind of overlaying, if that's a word, references to Bay Area high schools, like St. Ignatius and like a jersey number, and then items that appear to be from Latinx pop culture to these kinds of very Spanish-style representations of biblical stories, such as the flight, and all with kind of lots of red, white, and blue kind of running all the way across it. And then at the very heart of this quilt is is a 1968 passage that references the the murders of, of King and the two Kennedys in 68. It's just this kind of, I don't know, it's a really kind of fairly moving and affecting look at mid-20th century America. The work of Patricia Turner is helping me, I think, work through this quilt. And I'll admit, you know, I am still working through this quilt. There's a lot in this quilt. There is a whole lot in this quilt. Yeah. And and just one sort of historically, you know, these three civil rights leaders or really prominent kind of left-leaning political figures from the 60s were often fixtures in African-American households. I think for for reasons that are that are obvious. And so 
in my mind, right, this this quilt, at least as far thematically, is very much, yes, that meditation on, to use sort of like an older phrase, race relations. <laughs> and I think the ways that typical or the, the image of Americanness, the image of citizenship, I think throughout history has so much been yet very much right, this sort of, this image of whiteness. But what the vocabulary of quilting for me in this work does is that she she really loosens that up and is saying the red, white, and blue, the stars and stripes as we understand it, has within it so much flexibility and freeness to be populated by individuals of so many different backgrounds, ethnicities, nationalities. And so on the left and the right columns of this, where the flag is most directly being worked with, right? She has these batiks and kind of what I say, Mexican style serape fabrics, you know, standing in for the blue and the white. And there's this sort of not interchangeability is not the word I'm looking for, but sort of the multiplicity with which Americanness can be occupied by people of so many different backgrounds, which I think to me is yeah, kind of rooted in rooted in the civil rights movement and what these three figures in the medallion represent. I think she's further, I think, playing with that in the in the horizontal bar right above the three figures where black and brown and white and yellow are being <laughs> freely mixed into that half square triangle representation. And something that is difficult to discern in the image that that vertical column that looks very dark to the left of JFK is actually black cotton that has been dotted with small pink hearts. And so I think there's sort of this, it's like this very strange amalgam of crashing together of so many different cultural associations that are carried in the fabric. But then in that vertical column, which, you know, at first struck me as, you know, almost like, like a funerary, like a funerary banner or like those, the, the kind of black bunting that you think of with, you know, JFK's processional, like his funeral processional. But then to have that kind of dotted with these very, these small hearts that are both cute, but also kind of bring in this kind of affection and lightheartedness. It's very weird. Finally, we haven't talked much about Tompkins's materials, but I think they've, they changed a good bit between, you know, the sixties and, and the end of her life as, as you've literally had your hands on these quilts, what kinds of things have you noticed about what she was using and seemed to really enjoy using? Well, velvets, velveteen and velours foremost, you know, and I do write about that in the catalog essay, you know, Eli had recorded that velvets were her favorite material. And I think the, uh, the tactility, the, the luxuriousness, and plus the variety of visual effects one could achieve with velvet are, I think, to me, signal, you know, some of why this kind of material appealed to her. But yeah, I'll just say from my experience in handling and looking at things, she really used everything. I mean, it may be more helpful to rattle off some of the fabrics that I have seen, and maybe your listeners can maybe think of exceptions to what I didn't name, but she worked in denim. She often would repurpose 
bed sheet. So there is a work in, in the exhibition, actually two, both plates 61 and the large green embroidered piece, plate 52. And now these are bed sheets that most likely would have purchased in a thrift store or flea market. She used neckties. Oh, the necktie one is so good. <laughs> we'll have that one on the webpage. It's just so clever and funny and smart and it's great. <laughs> you know, the, uh, what I, you know, what I and some others who worked closely with the Tompkins materials called her Christmas quilts. And now these are artworks that use exclusively fabrics that have some kind of metallic element to them, some kind of like lurex or lame. It was, it was wonderful walking in with different visitors because you can imagine the kind of polyester kind of leisure suit that some of these things would have come from. And it brings this entirely different feel to, to the work. <laughs> and so, yes, I, I invite everybody, please come, please come and look. She used all, all, and repurposed all kinds of materials from like young girls' tights that often have kind of, you know, that kind of cable, cable pattern woven into them. There was one work that was a complete surprise to me recently on view at Anthony Meyer Fine Arts, where she's repurposing underwear and you can see the elastic and some of the gussets still in the work itself. She would often embroider, you know, jackets, pants, men's pants. There's again, there's a work in the show where you can see the the brown, gray, and kind of khaki palette of um, of men's pants. The sheer variety of of textiles and fabrics that she used, I think, are are of one. They're overwhelming, but I think that it's also partially why her quilts are so engrossing. Because on the one hand, they are almost too familiar in the kinds of fabrics, right? So even that little exercise that I just mentioned earlier of trying to imagine the original piece of the article of clothing or fabric. I, I think you could do that for any one of her artworks. Yet at the same time, the way she's handling and, and piecing them together and really transforming them into some other kind of visual and material object is really where the sheer energy of looking is taking place. And so I think other than the friendship bracelets, I wouldn't hesitate to say she used almost everything yeah, no, all, all of that, this is to say these aren't like 1920s or 19th century quilts. I mean, they're contemporary throughout and and intentionally and often self, self-referentially too. Elaine Yao, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.